no matter what reason you're drinking, I can guarantee you, I can draw a line back to something you are trying to get away from. So something you're trying to avoid that you think is negative or unfavorable or something you're trying to achieve that you think is positive. So the things that we're trying to avoid are being boring, being tired, being sad, being um, stressed out, being anxious. So sometimes we drink to avoid those states of mind or those states of being. And other times we drink to achieve something. We want to achieve the sense of celebration, a sense of happiness, a sense of feeling sexy, a sense of feeling relaxed. And no matter which way you slice it, what you're telling yourself when you drink to avoid or achieve something is that you are not capable of handling this emotion or physical state on your own. And that's absolutely not true. It's just that no matter what you've been using alcohol to avoid or achieve, you've been cheating the system. What's up, listeners? Welcome back to another episode of Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I am sitting down with Amanda Kuda. I'm so excited to be bringing you this episode, mostly because I have been doing a lot of kind of ask me anything. How can I support you on Instagram? And a lot of you have been writing in about sobriety or being sober curious or how to navigate a life of newly achieved sobriety. Amanda can answer all of this. So coolest part about Amanda is that she talks all about elective sobriety. We were able to kind of destigmatize or pull away from the idea that there had to be a problem in order for you to get sober. And that's just not the case. Amanda gives so many different tips and tricks and insights into what it was like to be one month, three months, a year sober, what it means to drink, to avoid and what it means to drink to achieve. And probably one of my favorite things we talked about was sober dating. And this can be really difficult to navigate. And Amanda gives so many tools and so many awesome insights on how that can be achieved. If you love today's show as much as I did, please be sure to give the show a five-star rating and review. And if you want to swap out something you're drinking, maybe kick the booze a little bit definitely check out Element, L-M-N-T. It is my favorite, favorite, favorite go-to hydration supplement with the cleanest and most awesome ingredients. It's a little cold right now. So I have been sipping the chocolate salt hot and holy shit, you guys, it is like a beautiful, delicious hot cocoa in the evenings before bed. And I cannot, cannot, cannot suggested enough. So be sure to hit the link in the show notes and get yourself a free sample pack. Just pay for the shipping and enjoy some delicious, yummy, incredible element throughout your day or possibly on your sober journey. Enjoy today's show. so excited. Amanda's in the house. Yay. Hey, hey. Mutual friend of the show. For those of you that listened back to Bryn's episode a while back, Bryn brought Amanda into my life and it was like one of those, I'm going to speak for both of us right now. And you can yeah, be like, Lindsay, you're totally whack. But when I met you, I was like, oh, this girl's got it. Like she's on that like same thread of the same path, the same language, the same energy. So I'm super, super excited to be sitting down with you today, especially because you bring so much to the show on a topic that 
I am not as versed in. And so I can't wait to pick your brain. Um, but for people that are tuning in that don't know you, could you give a little brief, Hey, this is what I'm about. Totally. Hey, well, I'm Amanda and I am an elective sobriety coach. And what that means is I coach, um, mostly I work with women, but I coach individuals who are going down a path of sobriety by choice, meaning that they're not identifying as someone with an addiction or, um, um, abuse of alcohol that they just decided for the health of it, for spiritual development and personal wellness and personal development that they want to quit drinking. But because we live in a world that is obsessed with booze and has completely made drinking alcohol normal, that can be really difficult. It can be really hard and intimidating. And so even if you don't quote unquote, identify as someone who has a problem, often there is this sense of needing help to navigate this new world of being alcohol free. And that's what I help my clients do. And something I never imagined I would be doing yet here I am. That's how the cookie crumbled. That's how the cookie crumbled. Um, so my question is if you didn't expect yourself to be in this place, what brought you there? Yeah. Serendipity, pure serendipity. You know, I, I never actually intended to start drinking in the first place. I was kind of a goody goody, like nerdy kid, but I desperately wanted to be popular. I lived in a super small town and I kind of ended up floating through a lot of different social groups and not really knowing where I fit in and always kind of feeling like a weirdo. And so maybe around my junior or senior year of high school, I think it was about the time that I decided screw it. It looks like everyone is drinking. That's what I have to do to fit in. So I'm going to do that. And I kind of like fell into this lifestyle that I thought perceivably helped bring me out of my shell. Mm. And so I started to identify as a party girl and really made that into a part of my persona and identity because I thought that's what was popular and good and fun. And I carried that in through my twenties, through my early thirties. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, I started to get this nagging feeling in my gut that I couldn't and shouldn't keep up this relationship with alcohol because there was something bigger in store for me. And I couldn't explain it, but I just knew deep in my soul that I needed to quit drinking in order to find it. And that feeling made me really uncomfortable because here I built this decade long identity around drinking. And that's how I knew that's the only way I knew to make friends, to go on dates, to do a lot of different things in the society that we use alcohol for. And I was mostly afraid because I knew that I wasn't an alcoholic, but this is five years ago. And there were no models for quitting drinking that didn't require you to identify as someone who had a problem. And so I had this like double bind of knowing I would be an imposter if I went to AA and not really feeling good about that, but also not feeling good about being stuck on the party scene. And so ultimately I made the decision that, okay, there's no path. There's no clear path here but I'm called to find a path. And so if I'm the first one on the trail, so be it, I'll figure it out. And certainly there were other people who were kind of doing what I had wanted to do quietly, but no one was talking about it. And so I started on this path of personal development and sobriety and started really just sharing about it organically. People started coming to me and saying, Oh, Hey, I'm like you, can you help me? And five years later, I'm full-time people who want to change the relationship with alcohol and under contract to write a book on the topic. Oh and my gosh. That's, it just all happened. Oh my gosh. Okay. I have so many questions. I want to back up the bus before we get into books and we get into what the path looks like now, but what was that path when you were first starting out? 
Cause like you were saying, there wasn't, there were people doing it kind of in the shadows or in the silence of their own comfort, um, but not really sharing that. So after you got this, what sounds like an immense call to mm-hmm. change a huge part of your identity, a huge part of your life, what was that first step and how did it feel to start going down this new path? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I was at this point in my life where I just gone through like the shittiest part of my twenties. I was in a job that really was, you know, running me dry and not paying me enough. I just had my first really big heartbreak. And so I really started making moves to improve myself. I'd enrolled in therapy. I was working out. I was reading these self-help books and it all seemed that everything I was doing was going in one ear and out the other. Nothing seemed to make a difference. And you know, from the self-help perspective, I kept getting little, like every self-help book had a teeny tiny mention of, oh, and by the way, if you quit, if you, you know, examine your relationship with alcohol, all this might be a little bit easier, but it was always just a little blurb like, oh, Hey, this is something you could look at too. And every time I saw it, I thought, I feel like this is all backwards. I feel like there is a foundational element here that I need to remove because I'm doing everything that you're saying, or so I think, and it's not working. And so I had already started to put some of these pieces into place, these fundamental pieces of having a therapist, having, you know, a spiritual practice, meditating, working out, and it just didn't seem to work. And so I tried then to reverse engineer and think, okay, I've added all of these things into my life, but what could I subtract? Mm. And the overwhelming mathematical answer was booze. So I decided to take a 30 day break alcohol. Um, I did it during dry January, which is um, probably when, about when this episode is coming out. And that made it really easy for me because it was kind of like a cultural movement, but that's also the longest stint I'd ever had not drinking from the time that I was 17. So it was kind of a bold move at that point. And I had this notion during that 30 days, that 30 days wasn't enough. And so I extended it to 90 days and 90 days became six months. And six months became a year. And during that time, what I found was having alcohol out of the way really created the space for me to pursue this professional, professional, personal rather development thing that I was really craving for, but not getting at. And as I started practicing all of these things that were already a part of my life, alcohol free, they suddenly started to click and in a big way and really fast. And so my first steps were actually continuing to do everything that I was already doing, but just without alcohol in the picture. And once that was out of the way, I was so amazed with how far and fast I was able to go. It, it really just, it was miraculous to be honest. So when you say that alcohol was such a big part of your identity, right? You had created this identity around the party girl. Mm-hmm. And then you kept doing the same things you were doing sans alcohol. What was it like? Cause I get questions like this all the time from kind of my audiences. What was it like to be back in the party scene without like the party juice? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, that was short-lived because <laughs> I, it was short-lived because here's the thing. This is a hard truth. If you think something in your life is going to be boring without alcohol, it's probably just boring period. And you've been using alcohol to make it seem fun or to dull your senses so that you can tolerate it. 
And I realized that pretty quickly. I tried pretty hard to be the cool girl who was just going to keep up with my normal lifestyle. So I did continue to go out with my friends for whatever things that they had planned. And it didn't take me really very long to realize that, wow, this is really dull. And I actually don't like a lot of these things. So there were things I was able to tolerate, um, but I sure as hell wasn't able to stay out until one, two, whatever in the morning while everyone else was at level a, and I was still, and I was, you know, just at a completely different level. And it, it really gave me a space to check myself and reevaluate what is fun and what is actually really mundane and requires me to be emotionally and physically numb to tolerate. And the Mm. answer was most of my social life was mind numbing. It just wasn't fun. Wow. What a, what a crazy realization. Cause I know like I've done, you know, a sober month or a sober stint here and there. And first and foremost, I realized that I will go to gladly go to bed at 8 PM before going out. Um, and just like you said, you know, it got to a certain point in the night where like everyone else's face is kind of melting off and you're sitting there like, Hmm, I don't know if this is what I want to do. So that's a really awesome reframe. However, I'm curious what you would tell clients or somebody that was sober curious, Mm -hmm. um, about that, the parts of themselves that they like drinking. Yeah. You know, we always, no matter what reason you're drinking, I can guarantee you, I can, I can draw a line back to something you are trying to get away from. So something you're trying to avoid that you think is negative or unfavorable or something you're trying to achieve that you think is positive. So the things that we're trying to avoid are being boring, being tired, being sad, being um, stressed out, being anxious. And so sometimes we drink to avoid those states of mind or those states of being. And other times we drink to achieve something. We want to achieve the sense of celebration, a sense of happiness, a sense of feeling sexy, a sense of feeling relaxed. And no matter which way you slice it, what you're telling yourself when you drink to avoid or achieve something is that you are not capable of handling this emotion or physical state on your own, or you're not able to do it on your own. And that's absolutely not true. It's just that no matter what you've been using alcohol to avoid or achieve, you've been cheating the system. You Mm -hmm. have emotionally stunted your growth and you haven't yet learned the skills that you need to actually get to that state without cheating. It's like, um, have you ever been to the bowling alley where there's kids and they put those little bumpers (laughs) in the gutters, right? Which I am a badass bowler. If I've got the bumpers up, I, you know, I'm going to go down and hit the pins every time, but it's cheating. Right. I mean, for a kid, it's not cheating, but alcohol is like using the bumpers. It is cheating through a system that you could actually learn the skills to do. And at which point, if you learn those skills and practice, you'll become completely confident. So what I would say in terms of getting at those emotional states is first of all, take a step back and say, what have I been trying to avoid or achieve? What are the things that I'm really running from or running towards? And let's get real about when I lost those skills or when I stopped trying to practice those skills and what are the fundamental skills or beliefs I would need to go back and reset in my system in order to feel I could do that confidently. And that's why having a therapist or a coach or someone to talk with, to kind of talk you through these emotionally stunted periods is really helpful if you're exploring any type of personal growth, but especially where you've been 
kind of stunting yourself specifically. What are some of the common like false core beliefs or those emotional stunts that you're talking about? Are there common themes that show up in the people that you work with? Totally. So one is I'm not capable of, of dealing with stress. Life is too hard and I need something to escape from this life. Um, just if just for a moment, I need something to make it easier. I need something to take the edge off, right? That's a really common one with alcohol. And then the other one, um, because I happen to work with a lot of people who identify as maybe introverted or, um, highly sensitive, empathic, um, people who just experience the world at a different level. And in that case, um, they're trying to shut down their emotional systems because they've never been taught how to really be in the energy of other people. Um, or just people who are, you know, anxious, socially anxious or introverted and have this core belief that they don't know how to be social. They don't know how to be fun or engaging, or, um, if they try, or if they're in a certain situation that they'll have a panic attack or an anxiety attack. And really that goes back to, okay. So instead of putting literally putting fuel on the fire, which is what drinking is, let's go back and just figure out what is it that makes you anxious? What is it that makes you um, feel socially awkward and how can we resource you for those things? Or what is it that causes you stress and how can we give you an actual practical tool to deal with stress versus having you dilute it and delay it for 10, 20 hours, because it's just going to come back with the bigger vengeance. If you, if you try to, you know, cheat through the cheat to the cheat through the system, basically. Yeah. It's really interesting to start talking about, you know, what are those those triggers, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and how can we start addressing those from a lifestyle standpoint, instead of, you know, this kind of like we're masking a symptom, not getting to the root cause if we're using alcohol, drugs or alcohol. Oh, totally. Totally. What would you say to somebody wanting to get out and get into the dating scene, especially with how common, like, Hey, you want to grab a drink is. Yeah. You know, this is one of my favorite topics because first of all, let me tell you that I had zero, I mean, really piss poor dating experience. When I first stopped drinking, I was 31. Um, I was an ugly duckling in high school and I didn't like come into my own until college. And so if you do the math, I said, I started drinking at 17. That means every single formative romantic experience I had was with booze in the picture. So I literally didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was smart and, um, confident enough to know that I could figure it out, but I was going in here with no experience dating alcohol free. But what I can tell you is if you envision that a person you're going on a date with could be your person, they could be the one, don't you want to hold in your heart that you can feel comfortable enough being around that person completely undiluted and that they could do the same for you. And that's the first thing just to tap into the core belief that if this person could be my person, I have to trust that they're going to be engaging enough and I'm going to be engaging enough to get through whatever the situation is. Um, but I have so, so many kind of different mind frames for navigating the dating market that I think that are very counterintuitive. So I'd be happy to share a couple of them, but yeah, bring them in. Yeah. So, you know, I really, I tried at first to be the cool girl when I was dating. And so I was like, you know, really just haphazardly swiping on the dating apps and I would go out with anyone. I'm like, I'm just going to get out there and I'm I'm going to give this a try. (laughs) Yep, exactly. And it's all, again, it's all practice. Everything that you feel you are weak in 
all you need is practice. So at first I was just looking at it as practice, but I picked some, um, substandard practice partners because they, (laughs) they weren't quite ready to show up at the level that I was. So I definitely went on a lot of dates where my date was drinking. And I realized pretty quickly that that wasn't a fair game. It was like me trying to play tennis against Venus or Serena. It just wasn't making sense. So I needed to get someone who was like a little more up to my level. And so I started focusing on either going on dates with men who were light drinkers or didn't drink at all, or at least manufacturing a dating scenario where drinking wasn't involved. And so I would say to anyone trying this out, the best case scenario, that's probably going to make you feel the most comfortable is if that person is on the same energetic level as you. And what I mean by that is if you can both go into it, not drinking. So I would recommend not, um, not agreeing to a date where you're meeting for drinks and just choosing to drink seltzer, you're actually going to a coffee shop or going on a walk or doing something active to where neither of you is drinking. And I promise you, you will feel so much better in that element than if you're trying to resist drinking while the other person is getting hammered across the table. Totally. I, first yeah. thing that comes to mind, I'm like, go play laser tag. <laughs> yes. Do something fun. Get your body moving. It just doesn't Um, it doesn't serve you to try and communicate with someone who is at some point in the date going to be at a different conscious level. So remember, especially if you're on dating apps, you're, you have an endless sea of practice. You literally are just gathering data the whole time, but try to choose practice partners and practice scenarios that are actually going to help you out versus make you feel even more uncomfortable. And I promise after a few times practicing, you're going to get in the groove and realize, oh, I can do this. This is no different than meeting a friend for lunch or for coffee. I just haven't practiced in this specific environment yet. And once you do it a few times, you'll realize, oh, it's not as bad as I thought. Totally. Um, I see you wanting to take your sweatshirt off. So I'm yes. just going to give a pause like, so you can take that off. It's getting hot in here. <laughs> totally. I'll edit it out. Okay. I'm back. So what would you say to somebody or how could you support somebody in having that conversation? Right. I, I immediately go to like, this is something that I would kind of want front facing, especially Mm -hmm. if it was something that was such a major component of my life. And that could be scary, right? Mm -hmm. Like in your dating app bio or what I haven't been on dating apps in in a minute, but you know, putting that you're sober or any of those things, right. It it allows as kind of a filter. Um, but if someone wasn't comfortable putting that, or maybe they did meet someone out in the wild and not on Mm -hmm. Bumble or something like that. Um, how would you approach that conversation? Yes. That's such a great question because we, anyone who has journeyed down the path of non-drinking, I has gone through this anxiety period of how do I communicate this? And what I would say to you first is across the board, less is more, you don't have to over explain, but because I know that maybe we're talking to two different walks of people, I will, I'll, I'll give a, um, kind of specification here, just a mass, um, clearing one group is you are in recovery and, and you probably have some, some different rules than I would offer you around dating. And so I would say, if you are in recovery, talk to your sponsor and your group about that. Um, I'm specifically going to give advice for people who are just electively making the decision to be alcohol free. And in that, I would say, because this isn't something that you're identifying as the cornerstone of your life, it's not necessary to bring it up 
upfront. This is not, you know, a political affiliation or a religion or something that you are putting as one of your number one core values necessarily. So I don't think it's necessary to put it in your dating profile or anything specifically because being alcohol-free still has a lot of stigma. And until you have the opportunity to maybe explain that back and forth with someone in a dialogue situation, I think that you could maybe be eliminating some potential really good partners who just don't understand what being alcohol-free is about. So I say, leave it out of your bio. Don't even use your characters or character count on that fact, but I think that you need to get it out there really, really quickly in conversation. That way you can determine if the person is a match. And what I like to do is if I'm chatting back and forth. So if I were on a dating app, I would just at some point very early on say, oh, by the way, I don't drink alcohol right now, or I'm a non-drinker or I'm alcohol free. Just wanted to let you know in case that's a big part of your life. And if so, I wish you well, but if not, would love to meet up at some point and do something non-drinking related. So I really try to get that out there really quickly. Um, But if I'm in a, we've just met face-to-face, I usually let it come up organically. So typically what will happen just playing out the scenario is someone will say, Hey, I'd love to meet you for drinks. At which point I would say, you know what? I actually don't drink, but I'd love to meet for coffee or a walk. And that last part is really important because if you're going, because you're the one breaking the social norm and you're technically declining their date by saying, I actually don't drink it is best practice to then offer them another scenario versus try and make their mind who's still comprehending this work harder. I think it's just a pleasantry to go ahead and say, okay, well, I can't do what you suggested, but how about this or this? And I've always found that to be super successful, or they say, I don't know that I can do that. And then it's a no, and we move on and we don't waste any more of our time. Okay. So what do you say to the person that had the, the suggestion of coffee or a walk. And that person said, no, and you guys went your separate ways. Right. Yeah. Um, I can see that being a making it very difficult for you to want to stick to this elective sober life, Mm -hmm. right. That tape starts playing of like, crap, I'm different. This is always going to be a hindrance. It was so much easier when I drank. Um, Let's, let's address that narrative first. What okay. might be your response to that? Yeah. Well, how woo can we be here? Oh, it's called get psyched. Like, okay. We're going to go psyched, woo then. We we're going yep. to talk about energetics. So here's the thing. When you are drinking, you are vibrating at a specific energetic level that is dictated by alcohol because alcohol lowers your energetic vibration. And when you're at that vibration, you are automatically going to attract friends, lovers, acquaintances who vibrate at that similar vibration. Um, on the same page, you are going to have blinders on so that you are only seeing people who are at this same vibration. So what happens is this really unique thing where you continue to get examples of people who are just like you, and you are only able to see examples of people who are just like you, but it's only because your vision is skewed. All right. So you probably will have a few people who are kind of in-betweens vibrating at that weird level of the old you, Mm. but as you become more comfortable and step into this new vibration, you are automatically going to start seeing and being attracted to people who are a match for this new level. And those people are going to start being attracted to you. So even though early on, it might feel like, oh my God, I'm a loser. Everyone drinks. No one will ever love me. No one will ever be my friend. It's just because you haven't quite switched levels yet. And once you do, you will have an abundance of people coming to you. I cannot explain it any better than that, but the level of attraction 
or the level of people that you'll be attracted to and who will be attracted to you will change. And you just cannot see those people who are your new people yet. Mm, I love that. I would have never thought to think of it that way, but I absolutely love that. Mm -hmm. Um, and this might warrant a similar response, but what would you say to the person that is then basing their self-worth on someone else's ability to accept or decline their date reframe or, or offer? Sorry, I'm not Mm -hmm. up for drinks right now, but coffee or a walk sounds great. Right. And that person says, no, what do you say to the person that's starting to attach their self-worth to that? No. Oh, I feel you. I feel you because I went on several of those dates where I thought the same thing. And I thought that I was undateable or that I was going to be perceived as fundamentally flawed and it hurts for a second. And anytime you are working on yourself, you're going to have to grapple with up-leveling your self-worth. And you're going to have to have a conversation with yourself when people come to you and say things that challenge that self-worth. And sometimes that voice that challenges your self-worth is inside of you. In fact, most often it is, but I want to say that no stable relationship is built with a liquid bond made through alcohol. And if that is what the person on the other side of the table is placing as their highest value, then that person is just not your person. And I would, I would love to give you all of these tips and how to get through that. And sometimes you just have to sit in that discomfort of, wow, I'm in a stage of metamorphosis right now and it's icky and it's weird. And I feel alone, but I have to trust that on the other side of this, I'm going to feel better about myself. Mm. And I just, I know that you will, I know because I've seen it in myself and so many people and if you continue to, to travel down this path, if you've been curious about changing your relationship with alcohol and you do not explore it, I promise you, there will always be something that's nagging at you to do it. You will never, you will always regret not, not making that decision or not exploring that curiosity. Have you ever worked with a client that is going down this path of elective sobriety? perhaps they find their person, it's incredible. And then they make the conscious decision to bring alcohol back into, back into their life. Have you Mm -hmm. seen that be successful or what have you seen in that situation? I have seen it be not to be discouraging. I've seen it be mostly not super successful. And that's because a lot of times they, the people haven't given it enough time, but actually I work with two clients who have gone alcohol free for upwards of seven years and decided to dip their toe kind of back in the drinking pond only to find that it's not as glamorous or as fun or as easy as they thought, even though they'd taken a really long break and spent a lot of time working on themselves. But I think typically what happens is if you actually dive in and do the hard self-work. If you really work on yourself and bring yourself up to a psychological and spiritual level where you're super rooted that once you get to that point where you have the decision to make, do I want to drink again or no, your life will be so beautiful that alcohol will be completely insignificant and it won't even be a question. And I think that's where I'm at now, but I've also put in a ton of time to do the self-work and sometimes sometimes people stop drinking and just take that as checking the box. So Mm -hmm. I would assume that the type of people who are listening to your podcast are in there doing the work and that they would also get to a point where if they had a combination of 
checking the box of abstinence and doing the work at some point, alcohol would just become an irrelevant question. And that's a good feeling. That's a good place to be at where you see alcohol and you're like, uh, not really interested. I feel pretty, I feel pretty amazing. That no longer has a place in my life. Totally. Just to play devil's advocate. Do you think that there is a way to have a conscious relationship with alcohol? I think that there is a way to have a more conscious relationship with alcohol, but I, when I look at the, the reasons why people drink again, and it's to achieve a feeling And that feeling is always a little bit of a sense of numbness and a little bit of a sense of escape and escape is mindlessness and mindlessness is the opposite of mindfulness. So just by like proper deduction, not technically, but I do know a lot of people who drink, who are able to drink very moderately and don't have a tumultuous relationship with alcohol um, whatsoever. And so I think that it's absolutely possible to get to a moderate relationship and a more mindful relationship. But, um, the terminology there is just really hard for me when I do, when I kind of like put some words together, but yes and no, yes, I think it can be moderate. Do I think it's, do I like the word conscious with it? Not a lot, but that's just me. And that's just where I'm at. And I also don't think alcohol is bad, wrong, or evil. I just think that for people who have, um, who've had the little nudge to change that relationship that, at some point, what I found is they, they find the best answer or the best lifestyle is just, it's not for me anymore. Totally get that. Okay. I want to switch gears just a tiny bit because Mm -hmm. you mentioned the book. So I'm very, very curious. What is the backbone of this? How are you kind of setting that up? Yeah. So I am currently in the last 30 days. I'm in the home stretch of writing a manuscript, um, for a book that's called unbottled potential. It'll be out sometime published by Avery within the next year and a half or so. And my approach to this is very much like my own journey. I had been really trying to do all of the self-help and figure out alcohol along the way. And the more enlightened answer was how can I remove the biggest barrier and then take on some of these self-help things that frankly, I didn't have the mental capacity to really understand or grapple with because alcohol was getting in the way of me really, truly understanding these concepts and being in my self-worth. So the whole concept of the book is how can we realize what are, what we have available to us? What potential are we leaving on the table? How is alcohol stifling that potential? How do we navigate some of these common stumbling blocks that are going to come up when you're trying to be booze free in a booze obsessed world. And what moves can you make after that to really up level into the life of your dreams? Okay. So we've talked quite a bit about, you know, not so much, what can we add to your life, but what can we Mm -hmm. take out of your life? What the path has looked like. And then you mentioned the the tail end of that book being, what can we add into your life at the end that Mm -hmm. kind of helps you up level, right? What are some of those things? Yeah. So, you know, I think that a spiritual practice is really one of the most beautiful things that you have available to you. Once you remove alcohol, trying to communicate with the universe, spirit, higher power, whatever have you, it's always available to you. But when you're doing it with booze in the way, it's like, you're talking on a cell phone in a tunnel. It just doesn't compute. And so 
when you remove that barrier, I find that you're able to tap into a deeper spiritual connection of your own understanding. And that can help you to get through a lot of the other things. And the next is adding in just general emotional resilience because Mm. it's a, it's a skill that we've lacked. And so how can you increase your capacity for good feeling thoughts and good feeling emotions, and also increase your capacity for not so good feeling thoughts and emotions. And I find that people who have been drinking for a long time actually have a pretty lower capacity for both the highs and lows. I mean, do you see that in your practice? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of things that can definitely affect, right. Someone's ability to emotionally regulate, uh, first thing that comes to mind, especially is trauma. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think that, and I think a lot of times people in Gabor Mate will talk about this, right? Like Mm -hmm. the addicts, like drinking drugs and alcohol were not the problem, right? Drugs and alcohol were actually the addicts attempt to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that to go into, you know, without digressing too far, um, I see a lot of trauma speaking there before Mm -hmm. I immediately go to like, oh, this is, you know, drugs or alcohol. It's what's underneath. Right. Um, and I'm curious to know if you ever, um, I've been totally geeking out on the Andrew Huberman podcast and he was talking Mm -hmm. about, he's a huge proponent of heat and ice exposure, Mm -hmm. um, and ice baths as a way to kind of learn if you can learn under that harsh of an environment to kind of silence the mind and Mm -hmm. like, it helps build resiliency as a whole, but also emotional resiliency, right? Because every part of you is saying, get me out of the ice, get me out of here, get me out of here, get me something warm, get me a towel, get me whatever. And if you can actually get to a space where you probably will never get rid of that voice, but you know how to exist and be despite that voice. Yes. He brings that into, you know, a lot of his resiliency work. So I'm curious if you do anything like that. Yeah. In terms of heat and ice or how to like just build resilience in general. Um, I love both. So if you do heat and ice, awesome. If there's more, like would love those tips and tricks too. Yeah. So we'll, I'll put the heat and ice on it, on the, on the side, because yes, that is a powerful tool. Anything that takes you out of your element a little bit can be so powerful, But when it comes to, we all have trauma, right? Some of it is big T, some of it is lots of little T. And that is one of the main reasons that anyone addict or not brings substance into their life is to cope with it's their ineffective coping solution. Right. And, and so, yes, we need to get under those things and through therapy and through other working processes, kind of get through those traumas and We also need to increase our capacity for experiencing the good and experiencing the bad. So I'll give an example of, you know, most of the women who I work with are really high achieving. They're super successful. They, from the outside, would look like they're killing it at life, but on the inside, they feel like they're living someone else's life and they're stuck on a boat that they never meant to get on. And they, they want to do something else. So you have this interesting persona of this really successful high achieving woman. And then I ask her to receive a compliment and she brushes it off. And I I'm sure so many of your listeners can relate to this. (laughs) Shit me. (laughs) Like, what are you, if I was like, Lindsay, you look, I love your outfit today. What is the first thing you would say? Oh, thanks. It has pockets, but your outfit. (laughs) Exactly. You give a fun fact to deflect, 
or you say where you got it or how much it costs. And then you push the compliment back on someone else. We have no capacity to experience goodness. And of course, maybe you're really great at compliments. If so, I admire you, but most people who I meet who are in this world are deflectors and they can't just sit and say, thank you. That made me feel so good. And actually our friend Bren is really good at this. So <laughs> She's good. like compliment reception queen. Um, so I like to look at people who are great at receiving compliments and use them as models and challenge my clients just to increase your capacity for feeling good. And what is, what, what the hell would that be like? If your default state could be feeling good. And most of them are completely unaware that their default state is mediocre right now. And so if you can just step into the practice of allowing yourself to feel a little more good, you'll start to get addicted then to the feeling of feeling good instead of making yourself feel like crap. And if there are bad things that come up or crummy situations or stressful things, learning to breathe through them, learning to sit down and you know, put a name to your emotion and maybe journal through it or do another practice that your therapist or coach recommends, you can really start to build that resilience and that sense of pride that, oh, I can actually handle this. I can handle anything that life throws at me. And what I've done through drinking is just kind of sweep my trauma or my bad feelings under the rug. And guess what? When you put something under a rug, it doesn't go away. It just builds up over time. And then you have more crap to deal with at the end of the day. So it's coming to this place where you're dealing with things as they come up and also embracing your capacity to deserve and have good things. And I think that's a really powerful practice to learn and have someone show you where your blind spots are to receiving good and handling bad. Yeah. I think that's one of the best things you can get from working with a therapist or a coach is Mm -hmm. just having that someone who truly, truly cares about you. Okay. Like there is a secure attachment there with that person. So you've built Mm -hmm. rapport, you trust that person and that person can be totally objective in your subjective world and really, really start to, like you said, shine the flashlight in those blind spots or those, those kind of dark spots. So of course that leads me to, if someone wanted to work with you or get connected with you or get their hands on any of the resources that you offer, how do they do that? Yeah. So I'm everywhere on the internet and social media. Um, and by everywhere, I mean, on Instagram at Amanda Kuda, it's Amanda and then K U D A. And right now I take private clients. I take a small amount of private clients, um, And most of them are high achieving women who are just ready to change their relationship with alcohol. And the work that we do is actually surprisingly less about quitting drinking and more about resourcing you to live your life without alcohol in the picture. And, um, it's just really beautiful work. I'm really excited and grateful to be doing what I'm doing because I've seen the tremendous impact it's had on my own life and the miraculous impact it's had on the women who I work with. So even if you're just curious, just pop by, start a conversation, lurk around, be a little creepy. I don't care. I'm here for it. (laughs) Social media is going to be creepy regardless. So I totally appreciate that you embrace it. Yeah. We will definitely keep our eyes out for unbottled potential. And I will link all the ways that you just mentioned in the show notes. Amanda, thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lindsay.